Hello, everybody. Dan Woods here from Early Adopter Research, and we're doing another in our series of podcasts from the RSA conference in 2019. We're here with Michael Covington, VP of Product Strategy for Wandera. What we're going to do today is talk a little bit about what Wandera does and then answer the three primary questions we've been asking everybody here at RSA. Uh, first, though, Michael, just so everybody knows where you're coming from, I would love it if you could provide a simple description of what Wandera does for the cybersecurity world. So Wandera is a mobile security company. We offer the... Uh, wow! No, no, I no, really I, don't have my words as soon no, as no, that no, microphone no. gets I, attached. I, I, I have this happen to me uh, occasionally as well, so just don't worry about it. Just you, You'll get in the flow. I know okay. you can talk. So Wandera is a mobile security firm. We offer uh, the mobile-enabled enterprise technologies which allow them to protect their endpoints, which are mobile. Uh, think uh, iOS devices or Android devices, as well as Windows 10 tablets, which might have uh, SIM-enabled connectivity, um, and protect them as they leave the corporate perimeter. Uh, we complement the technology that's on the device or in that endpoint with some network-based technologies to prevent things like phishing attacks, and cryptojacking from reaching those mobile endpoints. Excellent. Well, what we're going to be talking about is a variety of questions that you know are right on target to the areas that you serve. So it should be an interesting conversation. Excellent. Um, the first question I have is about zero trust. Now, when you think about the the big idea of zero trust, you know you usually think, oh, we're going to be able to. Uh, implement a better security system inside what is currently the zone of trust. That better security system will do a better job of understanding who is inside and will dynamically create a segmentation around that person so that they can do their work but will do it only inside of a, a very uh, precise uh, cybersecurity umbrella. And that sounds really good. It sounds like you're going to be more secure if you do that. But then when you think, wait, if we're, being, if we're not trusting those people inside the security perimeter, does that mean we can have less of a perimeter? Does that mean we can have different types of security or maybe less security here or there or the other place? And it turns out that zero trust is completely additive the way I, every way I've ever seen it being implemented. There's nothing that goes away. Um, and so do, this doesn't seem like... Uh, uh, the way it should be according to the concept. It seems like something should go away, you know, given, you know, when you, when you talk about uh, applying more security and trusting less, well, shouldn't, shouldn't something, shouldn't you be able to get a break somewhere else? I mean, so, so what, do you, what does zero trust mean in practice? You know, and, and why is it just another additive responsibility? So I think zero trust is a really interesting concept. And for me, it's, it's forcing a conversation with customers with enterprises who've made some decisions in the past and providing us with an educational moment to, to really, I think, own up to some decisions that um, the industry's made and that customers have made uh, as they've enabled their workforce with a whole bunch of new ways of, of doing technology. Um, mobility is not new, but I think mobility is one of the first trends that we saw that led to a change in the perimeter. You had devices that left that corporate space and still needed to access some sensitive content. 
But then cloud-hosted applications happened as well. And we started seeing not just the devices leaving and the people leaving the perimeter, but the applications as well. And now we have a whole bunch of other things that go along with that. Applications that are no longer being developed in-house. And you, you need to now enable these people who are no longer within this trusted space to, application, to access applications that are also not in that trusted space. And you need to do so with some kind of security assurances. I think zero trust, the concept of zero trust, is the industry's way of saying to the customer, you know, you made some decisions. You still need people to access sensitive data. How are you going to do it? We need to give you some tools in order to enable you to start building trust back up because right now you don't have any. What was the decisions that were made that made this requirement more important? I think one of the very first decisions that was made from my perspective was a decision around how to purchase these devices that were going to leave the corporate perimeter. We saw a, a, a trend, geez, about five to ten years ago uh, with BYOD that the industry thought was going to just take off. Uh, where uh, the end user would buy their own device, they would manage that device themselves, and they would still be able to access these sensitive corporate resources. Allowing a device to have access to sensitive content that was completely unmanaged and unprotected by the enterprise, I think was a, a game changer with the way IT uh, was delivered and is delivered still today. Um, and so that, I think, is one of those decisions that, that led us to where we are. I see. And so you're, you're saying that the, it's the wrong way to think about zero trust is only to think about it inside the trust perimeter. Zero trust becomes a lot more important when you think about how it deals with people who are outside the perimeter, accessing applications that are outside the perimeter. That's where it actually delivers this new value. It's not replacing anything, but it's actually providing something that's actually genuinely new. I think that is where it is absolutely genuinely new. And I think that um, some of the models that I've seen in the industry have come from people who've tried to take this kind of broader approach to, to building up trust and apply it in a, in a small microcosm within the, the, that trusted perimeter so they could get rid of certain things like big appliances, uh, firewall appliances that they had at the edge of their corporate network. But the reality is that what they were trying to enable was users with laptops who didn't want to use VPNs because VPNs provided a bad experience. Um, that has just kind of, I think, exploded as we've uh, seen uh, you know, certain device ownership models come out, new platforms from Apple and Android, uh, and new ways of accessing content online. And so you'd say, you'd argue that zero trust is also about a better experience when you're, when you're outside the perimeter. 100%. Without having to make cybersecurity so difficult yes. with VPNs, et cetera. Like I that. think one of the things we've had in the past is that security has not been an enabler. Uh, it has been something that's gotten in the way of the end user. Uh, when users are forced to change their password, for example, every month, what do they do? They choose weaker passwords by default because they need to remember that you know, uh, a new password on a more frequent cadence. Um, and I think that zero trust is kind of trying to leapfrog the, where we were um, with users just having all of these things forced in them. Remember to switch on the VPN. Remember to change your password regularly. Remember all of these new passwords that you have for these cloud, app uh, cloud applications that are hosted outside of our corporate perimeter, each one different credentials. Um, zero trust is, is really meant to provide the company with more assurances, security assurances, while making it easier on the user to unburden them with taking on a lot of that security responsibility on their own. 
The next question I want to ask is about portfolio pruning. Mm. Um, it seems that the entire world of cybersecurity has been additive. Every RSA, every you know, time a new trend comes up, there's a new solution. And there is never a time in which the old solutions seem to get pruned and replaced by the new solutions. People have been saying for a long time, antivirus is dead. But people still have antivirus systems of the kind that they said were dead in their environments. Um, you know, newer, better antivirus systems that do more have come up, but it hasn't replaced the ones that they, that they, they said should go away. Yes. And, and that's true in a lot of different uh, areas. We are starting to get to a point in which some of the anomaly detection systems are surfacing all the issues and events in such a way that they might be able to make SIMs redundant because they pretty much catch everything that you'd want to look at. And the, you know, having the SIM there doesn't mean as much anymore. Now, do you see any chance that we're going to get to a point where cybersecurity portfolio pruning actually starts to happen? Oof. I wouldn't even know where to begin to suggest to start the pruning. So one of the kind of core pillars of our business is around visibility. Uh, we help companies really understand, I think, a lot of things about their mobile users, their mobile devices. Uh, where in the world do they go? How much data are they consuming? What threats are they being presented with? What networks are they utilizing regularly? Every security tool that's in the toolkit, um, and I'm thinking more around the defensive types of tools, adds visibility that the company purchased for some reason to begin with. Uh, I don't see many organizations willing to give up uh, insights into a particular aspect of their information technology footprint. So when it comes to tools on the endpoint, tools in the network, do those I don't see getting pruned. They might get consolidated. Uh, so where you had endpoint detection and endpoint response, those may come together. Um, I think where we have the biggest opportunity to consolidate, to collapse, to prune, is going to be on the analytics side. You mentioned SIMs, and I think that giant log repositories that can process log events from every appliance, every user, every campus that an organization may have quickly and efficiently, that's important. But the layer on top that reads all those logs and helps to surface the relevant events that the company should care about, that's where we should be investing more. And that's where I think we need to drive towards a single solution so that the company has one console that they can look at. We're already overwhelmed with so many different events and so many different consoles that the more we can drive towards that one view into the, the security world of the enterprise, I think the better. So opportunities, I think, are, are there on the analytics side for pruning when, once we get the right tool and console in place. Well, the next uh, question I have is about uh, cybersecurity in the cloud. Mm. And so if you think about cybersecurity in the cloud, there's a couple ways to, to consider it. One is the idea of part of the implementation of services being in the cloud. And that's tr pretty much true with all on-premise services. They usually have, they're dumping data in the cloud, they're doing processing across all the implementations in the cloud to make everything smarter, and they're moving things back you know, to the on-premise system so it can run better. 
that's not really a, you know, that's a cloud-enhanced system, but the, the actual cybersecurity is being provided on-premise. Then you have, of course, cloud cybersecurity protecting assets that are in the cloud, you know, and those are, you know, that's obviously uh, security that never existed before that is now existing in the cloud. It's not security that's moving to the cloud. What do you think the prospects are for actual on-premise cybersecurity solutions to effectively move more toward the cloud? I mean, do you think there, that any such migration will take place? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I, I do think that it will take place, but keep in mind the perspective that, that I have. I have one from um, a, a mobile security provider. And so we see a tremendous move uh, just in the last couple of years for enterprises to adopt mobile technology across the workforce. It's not just the C-suite and the board anymore. It's everybody in the organization. And yeah, there are a lot of different ownership models that are in place, but we see just a ton of devices that are leaving that trusted perimeter. As these devices leave that perimeter, they are accessing a whole bunch of cloud services, and those cloud services need to be protected. I think one of the interesting things that we need to keep in mind here when we talk about security assets that the company wants to protect, it's not just the data that's often at rest in a database. Uh, it is the, the data that is being utilized on a regular basis by the workforce, on their laptops that they take out to a coffee shop, on their cell phones that they travel around the world with. And when that data is being pulled out of a data center, whether it is on-prem or in the cloud, and it is being consumed by a, an employee who is remote and outside of that trusted perimeter, we need a security tool that is going to be able to protect them wherever they are. The only way I see that being able to be get delivered in a kind of cost-effective, performant way is with cloud-based services. No corporation that I can think of wants to backhaul every mobile user's data and bring that through a set of on-prem services. And so I think you do need cloud services to help support that move out of the, the enterprise. Got it. I have three bonus questions uh, that are all about, you know, kind of difficult issues for CISOs. Mm. And uh, the first one is about operational discipline. And how many uh, CISOs do you think would be better off if they focused on taking some money that, in, and instead of buying a new solution, they took that money and they increased the automation of their uh, ability to create and configure their environment. They uh, create, increase the ability to uh, do patches in a timely manner, to understand and evaluate patches and know which ones to do and which ones to wait on. Uh, they did as much as they could to um, be able to automatically you know, con segment things through you know, network level configuration, not, not through other, other means and be very disciplined about changing it and, 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 and doing it precisely. How many CISOs would be better off if they shifted money toward operational discipline? I think all of them. <laughs> uh, I think that um, choosing how and when to spend a budget, it, there's a process around that. Um, one of the things that I see in uh, kind of seriously underrepresented in budgets these days are people, analysts, to actually go through logs and events and understand what the company is already 
technically seeing through the investments that they've made um, and or the, the compute uh, automation tools to help them proactively uh, assess the events that they're sitting on top of. Uh, I think that so many companies do risk assessments once every two to five years. And if they simply had the processes in place that allowed them to do that more often, it's not the new whiz-bang tool that's going to keep them protected. It's that visibility into their own uh, kind of deployments that I think will help them turn security into an enabler, if you will, rather than more of just a reactive kind of tool. And more operational discipline, you think, would help Absolutely. security become Absolutely. A, a, an enabler. The next question is about cybersecurity culture. Um, we have a lot of people who rightly point out that the people are the perimeter and that so much of the de facto security of a company comes from having people who are making good decisions when they're using computers. But it's not easy to kind of train people and have them maintain the awareness. What have you seen uh, companies do that has been effective to really make cybersecurity education and training part of everyday life so it becomes something where if somebody sees a bunch of passwords written on a post-it note they it doesn't it's not the auditor who gets mad they just say you shouldn't be doing that or you know how have you seen this implemented effectively I think one of the more effective approaches I've seen have been with companies that have hired social engineers to come in and essentially penetrate their way into the company and do a proper two to three hour presentation afterwards to the whole company. I think it helps everyone become aware of what it is that's often the low hanging fruit holding the door open for the person behind you so that the, they don't have to, to badge in, leaving the stickies on the monitor that have the passwords on it, falling victim for a, a simple phishing attack. I think having the visuals, having that conversation is the way that it's done most effectively, not shaming people into to feeling like they've done something wrong because they have fallen victim for a phishing attack. Um, I, one of the least effective uh, methods that I've seen used with companies around security education has been the phishing um, trials that they do where they uh, purposefully fish their employees and essentially force them to go through multiple hours of cybersecurity training if they fall victim. We've all fallen victim. It, it's, it's not just those of us who didn't pay attention to the PowerPoint we were forced to click through. Uh, and I think that um, making everyone feel like they're part of the solution, but they're also not suckers if, if they do get had, that there is a path to, to, to kind of right the wrongs if you do uh, make a mistake, that that's the way you have a conversation and you keep people engaged. Got it. And then my final question is about cybersecurity insurance. Mm. Um, I know a lot of CIOs, CTOs, CISOs who've been essentially strongly encouraged or forced to buy cybersecurity insurance by their CEO or board. Very few of them have confidence that it will actually be a good investment. What would your advice be about preventing this sort of spending? What arguments can be made by CISOs 
that cybersecurity insurance, which is a form of insurance that's new, that's relatively uh, uh, unstandardized, that tends to have lots of escape hatches to avoid paying a claim, uh, all of these things make it less likely that it's going to actually provide the protection needed. Uh, what would your advice be to a CISO who's trying to argue against it? I've simply heard too many anecdotes from those in the industry who have had the insurance and have had it not pay out, whether it be for a ransomware attack uh, and um, the company wasn't willing to pony up the money that uh, the company felt needed to get paid, uh, or a data breach that the company actually had to go and spend hard dollars on to clean up after the fact. Um, I think what I've seen quite effective with some CISOs have been those that have been able to take their existing security investments, use them to obtain some form of insight into the business. How's the business performing? What are the new applications that the employees want to use, i.e., where is their shadow IT that we can turn around and enable uh, end users with as a new tool rather than treating them as they're doing something wrong? And use those insights and the reports that get built out of them as something that you can hand into the board uh, for how you are utilizing the existing cybersecurity inve investments to improve your overall security posture and the overall health of the business. I think that's probably a better way to spend the funds that are at hand. Cybersecurity insurance is a good idea on paper, but I haven't seen it work out well for those that have had to cash in. Uh, next question. When do you think the performance crisis will become real? How can cybersecurity systems be made exponentially faster? So I think this is an interesting question. Um, you know, on one hand, uh, I would say we have probably hit up against a performance crisis now. Uh, I see us on the cusp of kind of broad deployment of 5G technology. We already know that mobile data rates are doubling year over year. The number of devices that users have in hand is right now around three, uh, and that's within the enterprise. As consumerization trends increase, it's likely going to be more. IoT, especially on manufacturing floors, is just going to make this um, huge. It's a massive problem, right? The number of devices that are out there that are generating data at very high speeds um, and consuming it 24-7, if you think about the 24-7 factory, uh, we are at a point now where the kind of traditional approach of security it has not been able or will not be able, I think, to, to keep up with monitoring all of this traffic. But I think that's where things start to shift for me. Um, if you look at the problem a little bit differently, uh, we may be in a wait and see moment right now. Um, Security used to be about scanning everything. We used to invest in firewalls or secure web gateways that would sit at the perimeter edge, and they would look at every last bit that would go back and forth to the internet. Um, big data pipe means big, big firewall. Big firewall means you've got hardware performance gains from certain big vendors that are needed. Uh, but I think there's another theme that's growing here, and it's one of privacy. And as we look to mobile devices in particular, where privacy has become a really big theme, where we see kind of separation of the consumer side and the, the, the business side of the device, you can't live in a world where you can scan every last bit anymore. 
Uh, and if we think about this, if we think about this concept of zero trust and distributed policy enforcement um, and context, using context to help us make in, informed security decisions, we might be at a place where we can actually make smarter decisions about what we do scan rather than scanning everything. And we might be able to scan, now that devices are outside of the perimeter, in different places. We don't have to scan all in one place anymore. And so I think that the, the architecture that we're looking at, the kind of the reality now uh, within the enterprise is, is far different than what it was 10 or 20 years ago. And that may lead us to a point where we can look at the, the performance question through a new lens. Do you think that hardware acceleration is going to be a big part of this, what makes this work? You know, there's no question. As you look kind of further out towards the edge, the edge of the network I'm talking about here, hardware acceleration in any form of optimization, whether it's in software or hardware, is going to be very, very important. Um, and I think as we work our way closer into the, the users, the applications that are being accessed, there's an opportunity to make smarter decisions at those different enforcement points. Well, Michael, this has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate your time here at RSA, and I um, hope you have a good show. Thanks for having us.